0: Turn to your Bibles, if you will, to uh, John chapter one. We started uh, a couple of three weeks ago, maybe, on a series on uh, the Gospel of John, and we're going through verse by verse. I've uh, it, it, this is uh, this series is causing some people some real concern because they remember how long I was in Hebrews, and Hebrews is just thirteen chapters. John is a lot longer than Hebrews, but don't worry. Once we get through the uh, introduction about uh, verse eighteen, then. Um, Things start moving a little bit quicker because it starts telling stories rather than uh, uh, than, than individual scriptures that we'll take apart. So uh, be at peace. We'll get through it before Christmas. Amen. We're going to back up uh, to uh, verse fourteen. John is speaking by the Holy Ghost. We've uh, we've made mention of a couple of uh, things that uh, probably bear uh, repeating. One is, John's gospel is different from any of the other gospels. It was the last gospel written, probably the last book of the Bible, other than the uh, Revelation that John also wrote. Um, most Bible scholars date this around 90 A.D. Um, John may, have, may be the only one of the gospel writers. Well, he was the only one of the gospel writers, um, the only one of the New Testament writers that's still alive at this point in time. John is the most famous preacher on the face of the earth. And as such, he gives an eyewitness account of uh, Jesus' ministry and the things that he uh, witnessed while he was with Jesus. And his theme of the, the gospel that bears his name is different than any of the other gospel writers. The theme of the gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God. So we want to pick up in verse 14. It says, and the word was made flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. This just means uh, John's ministry started before Jesus did. but, um, uh, But Jesus is certainly preferred or honored above John as far as position is concerned. And of his fullness, verse 16, And of his fullness have we all received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, there's a couple of things that we've talked about concerning a few of these verses, but there are two points that I want to make. Uh, Well, one point, two parts, uh, and that is I want to talk to you first this evening about the fullness of God. Now, you need to understand a little bit of the background. As I said, most gospel, most uh, uh, Bible scholars place the writing of this gospel about 90 A.D. Peter and John, or I'm sorry, Peter and Paul both died somewhere in 60s A.D. We know that they were both dead before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. John, however, witnessed the temple when Jesus was alive, and he witnessed what things were like afterwards. The point in time that John writes this the church is uh, is being un, is under attack from within. It's been persecuted a number of times from without, but it's being it's uh, being attacked from within by something called Gnosticism. And the, there's a couple of different uh, key points about the Gnostics. But one of the things that you need to be aware of is the Gnostics denied that Jesus was a, a lived on the earth as a man. They believed in the teachings, the principles, the ideas, and so forth. And, and that's not a lot, lot different from some of the religions on the earth today. They'll say, well, Jesus was a good man. The principles of Jesus are, are good and should be followed, but he wasn't, he wasn't really a man. He wasn't born of a virgin. He wasn't the Son of God here on the earth. And that's everything about John's gospel. Everything that John identifies is that Jesus was the Son of God. That's why the other gospel accounts give you a natural lineage of Jesus but John starts off talking about him being with the Father before the worlds were ever, uh, ever created. So at the point in time that John writes, as I said, John is an older man, uh, very old, probably close to 90 years old himself. And he is the most famous preacher in the church world. Now, as sometimes happens as ministers get older, some of the young people think that the ministers that are older, well, they are they were important during their time, but now we know better. And that's a lot of what's going on with Gnosticism in the church when when uh, John writes this. And so John says, when he says, and we beheld his glory, he's literally saying, I saw him. So he's trying to to set this up as you're either going to have to call me a liar or believe what I'm saying. I saw him. This is not theory for me. I saw him. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Then the, just because the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, he uses John the Baptist as the second witness. Now the reason that he mentions John the Baptist in three different places, he starts off, we uh, we looked in, uh, uh, what is it, verse 6 through uh, through 8, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's talking about John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light, and all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Then in verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. Then it skips down to uh, verse 19, and this is the record of John. Three times in the first chapter, he talks about John the Baptist. Why? If Jesus is the message, why talk about John the Baptist? Because the Gnostics believed in John the Baptist. They believed in the preaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a hellfire and brimstone type preacher. He's the one that said of Jesus that he's going to come with an unquenchable fire and he's going to separate the, the, uh, the wheat from the chaff and all that kind of stuff. He's the one crying out, repent. He's the one challenging face-to-face the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's doing all of these things that the people, the Gnostics at least, identified with and admired so when John says, not only did I see him, John the Baptist declared the same testimony that I have, now that kind of puts him in a box. So I want you to notice the one thing that he says. He says, we beheld his glory. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that's the phrase that he begins to um, build on for the next several verses, he talks about John bearing witness, John the Baptist bearing witness. And verse 16, he said, And of his fullness have we received, and grace for grace. Colossians chapter 2 verse uh, verse 9 says, For in him, Paul's talking about Jesus, For in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost that all of the Spirit of God that there was here on the earth was in Jesus in bodily form. Now, we don't know specifically that Paul is identifying with or, or combating or having to deal with the same Gnosticism because church history doesn't tell us that it started until sometime after Peter and Paul's ministry. At least it didn't gain prominence. So we don't know if, if he's just led by the Holy Ghost to say certain things that cut the Gnostics off at the knees Or if he's addressing something that that exists in the church at the time that he wrote. But he said, but in him, for in him, Jesus, dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now verse 10 goes on to say, and you are complete in him. Which is the head of all principality and power. Philip's translation says it this way, and you're filled with his fullness. For in Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're filled with his fullness which is the head of all principality and power. Now, what's the point? The point is, it's really important for us to know who Jesus was and what the fullness of God was in him because that's the same fullness of God you're supposed to have in you. In fact, the Bible says you already have it. Now, we'll show you how that's possible with the church not living up to it, but the Bible says it belongs to you. So I want you to notice two phrases. First phrase is, it was full of grace and truth. The second phrase that's used is verse 16, and of his fullness have we all received in grace for grace. What do those mean? Luke chapter 4 tells us about Jesus going to his own hometown of Nazareth. Verse uh, 17, it says, There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord is the jubilee, the year of jubilee. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say to them. Notice he began to say to them. Notice the Bible says that he began to say. In other words, this was his opening line for a lot of things that he said that we don't have record of. He began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Well, what gracious words proceeded out of his mouth? The things that he continued to say after he said, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, Jesus just said a lot more than just, This is talking about me. But that was his opening line. He's saying, These scriptures are talking about me. And then he said a bunch of other things and people said, Wow, what gracious words. They recognized that he was full of grace in what he said. They recognized that he had something about him that was out of the ordinary. There was something about him that reached out to them. He didn't put them down. Graciousness doesn't put somebody down. Graciousness lifts them up. Graciousness makes you feel better about yourself. So whatever Jesus said, he lifted them up He's drawing them, or at least attempting to draw them to the things of God, draw them to the knowledge of the kingdom of God. And they're, they're wowed by this. They're blown away. They wondered at His gracious words. This word wonder means they were in awe. They were in awe at the things that He said to them because those things lifted them up. Those things drew them to God. Those things caused them to have a different attitude, a different point of view about God than they've ever had before. Now, they're in the synagogue. They're hearing the rabbis preach every week. Jesus is telling them something they've never heard before. We know in other cases that the Bible says that people marveled because of the doctrine of authority that Jesus taught that man has authority here on the earth. Maybe he said something about that. We don't know, but whatever it was, they wondered as gracious words. In other words, they recognized the operation of grace in his preaching. That's what I want you to get. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted that, but that's as far as they wanted to go. It goes further and it says, um, well, let's read verse 22 again, And all bearing witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? In other words, they let the graciousness of his preaching be overcome. Is that a good way to say it? Be overcome by the doubts and the questions that they had. In other words, he's saying the scriptures about the Messiah that I just read from Isaiah, what we know of is Isaiah 61, these things are talking about me. And then he said a bunch of other things that would cause them to, to, to consider, at least consider, yeah, this could be the guy. This could be the Messiah. This could be the one. Listen to the things he's saying. Listen to the way he's saying it. But then they said, yeah, but wait a minute. We know his father. Isn't this Joseph's son? You know, it's an interesting thing because you've got conflicting scriptures in the Gospels. Now, that doesn't mean there's a discrepancy in the Scripture. It means Jesus was accused of two different things. In Nazareth, he wasn't received because they said, we know his father. That was his hometown. That's where he grew up. But when the Pharisees came to Jesus in another place and Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil, they said, we're not illegitimate. We're of Abraham. Why would they say that? Because it was said, it was rumored that Jesus was illegitimate when he was here on the earth. So he's accused of having a father and then... Criticized because he's an illegitimate child. Folks, the devil will work both sides of the street against you. Which one is it? Well, he was the son of God. He didn't have a natural father, but he certainly wasn't illegitimate, was he? So they said, this doubt, and folks, please understand this is the way the devil works. You can hear the word of God. I've seen this so many times. You can hear the word of God come and somebody will get a hold of it and the light will come on in their face and you can see they're starting to get it, they're starting to get it, and all of a sudden things will cloud over. And you'll know the devil brought it out. It's like, yeah, but wait a minute. How can that be because of this? You see it happen with healing all the time. At least I do. Preach the word of healing to somebody and they start to get it and then then they'll say, yeah, but what about Paul's thorn? Or they'll say, yeah, but what about my aunt that died of sickness? See, there's some thought that really, when you come down to it, is not related to the truth of the word that's being spoken, and it'll come in and cloud it over. That's what's happening with these guys. So they receive of the grace of Jesus' preaching, but then they let it be clouded over. They say, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said unto them, You will surely say, this unto, say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Now, I want you to notice what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I know what you want. You want me to disprove your doubt about me being Joseph's son by doing miracles. We've heard that you've done miracles in Capernaum, and he had. He'd done a lot of them. He'd had tremendous miracles in Capernaum. I know what you're thinking. That's what Jesus is saying. I know what you want. Now, how did he know? Did he know because of revelation of the Holy Ghost? Did he know because he saw their face cloud over? He saw a change in them like we can see in others? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I know that he understood where they were coming from, and he knew what was going to happen. Maybe he knew it because of the proverb that he speaks next. He said, I, verily I say unto you, no prophet is, is honored in... Uh, well, how does it go? Let me read it rather than try to quote it. I'm messing it up. Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Maybe he knows ahead of time, these guys are not going to receive me because they think they know me. They think they know me as a man. And they fail to recognize that I have a greater purpose. So, everything starts off good. Now it starts to turn sour. And Jesus said, but I tell you of the truth, verse 25, many widows were in Israel in the day of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent." Save or accept unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon. That's where the Gentiles live. A city of Sidon unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. He's a Gentile. He's saying, Elijah was a great prophet, you believe in Elijah. But it wasn't a Jew. It wasn't the people of Israel that benefited from Elijah's ministry. Same thing with Elisha. There weren't any Jewish lepers that were healed under Elisha. Only a Gentile. And all they in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. Folks, look how quickly things change. They go from wondering at the graciousness of his words to now they're filled with wrath to the extent... That they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. They got so mad they wanted to kill him. They went from saying, wow, we've never heard anything like this to kill this guy, kill this guy. Why? Because they accepted the grace and rejected the truth. Now, remember what John said. John said the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Now, folks, the Old Testament was full of truth. It's true that God is righteous. It's true that God demands judgment. It's true that God demands a sacrifice for sin. All that was true. And that's all that anybody got out of the law. The justice of God, the hardness of God, the 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 unchanging uh, demands of God. And he gave them the law, not because he was trying to be demanding, but to show them this is what righteousness demands. This is what it takes for somebody to stand righteous. They didn't get that. They didn't accept that. God was just simply trying to show them this is what you can't do on your own. That's why you need a savior. They didn't get that from the Old Testament. They got God is a righteous judge. He's a hard taskmaster. He requires so much of us. Therefore, you can't break the law in any form whatsoever. And it created a religious class that kept the people under bondage. So the Old Testament had a lot of truth. The Old Testament even had a lot of grace. I mean, Adam deserved to die as soon as he sinned because God does demand righteousness. Over and over and over again, the children of Israel deserved to die for their sins, but God would deliver them. The covenant that he made with Abraham was grace in action. God didn't say, okay, Abraham, do these 642 things and you and I can do business. It's not what he said. What did he demand of Abraham? Faith. Same thing he demands now. So the Old Testament showed grace and truth too. But what about Jesus? Jesus fully revealed it. Look with me over to John chapter 6. Let me show you another example. John chapter 6. This is just after Jesus has multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Notice verse 14. Then those men, which when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, that's the multiplying of the loaves and fishes, told us a few verses before, said, this is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. We'll talk about that a little bit. Well, I don't know if we'll get it tonight, but we'll talk about it a little bit further. And then it talks about uh, the multitudes came to Jesus. He went uh, across to the other side of the sea. Verse 22, the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save the one where his disciples were entered, that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. In other words, they figured out he supernaturally got from one side to the other. When the people, therefore, verse 24, saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Now, folks, how many were there that, were, that witnessed the miracle of the loaves and the fishes? 5,000 men. So you've got 5,000 people, or at least a lot of them, a good, a good percentage of them, that recognize, hey, we want to stick with Jesus. Look, he's multiplying loads of fishes. This has got to be the prophet. This is so supernatural. This has got to be the one that was spoken of. By the way, the prophet that's spoken of is Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, uh, by the Spirit of the Lord, that God will raise up another prophet like unto me that will speak unto you. Verse 18, he goes further and says, if you don't hearken unto him, then you'll have to answer for it. Talking about Jesus. Well, that's who they're talking about. This has got to be the prophet. This has got to be the one that was that was told us. And so they're still following. They're still coming after Jesus. You would think that that kind of crowd following Jesus would please him, wouldn't you? I mean, that's what church is about. It's drawing a crowd. Let's get the biggest crowd we can, right? Well, at what cost? And how? Jesus wasn't into crowds just for crowd's sake. And I'll prove it to you. Verse uh, 25, and when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? In other words, they're saying, how did you get here? We know you didn't come in the boat with your disciples. There wasn't any other boat. How would you get here? They want to hear about something else. They know Jesus is doing miracles. They just witnessed one yesterday. Now they're, they're thinking there must have been some other miracle. Who knows what they're thinking happened, but they want the answer. How did you get here? Tell us about the other miracle. Tell us what God did to get you from one place to the other. Across the sea. And then Jesus says something that's real interesting. In verse 26, Jesus answers them and says, he didn't tell them about walking on the water. He doesn't tell them about God's plan to go to the other side, show the disciples that he can control the weather or anything like that. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, he's saying, the only reason you're here is for a free meal. Folks, I'm not criticizing how anybody else does anything because I don't have to answer for anybody else. But that's why we don't have big days and car giveaways and stuff like that to draw crowds. Because if you give away a car this Sunday, everybody's going to come back next Sunday wanting to see when the next car is. Whatever you catch people on, you're going to have to keep feeding them. Well, I'm going to catch them on the word because that's all I got to feed them. I don't mean that like that's not enough. People go to church for a lot of different reasons. People act like they love God for a lot of different reasons. And so what happens? Jesus identifies the motives of this crowd. Why do they want to follow Jesus? They want to follow Him because of His grace. They want to follow Him because of the miracles. They want to follow Him because of the supernatural things that benefit them. Who ate the loaves and the fishes? They did. Man, do you realize we don't ever have to work again? We just stick with Jesus and he multiplies loaves and fishes every day. Maybe one day he'll start multiplying lambs. That's where they're coming from. Jesus identifies this. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus begins to tell them the truth. It's not just about grace for Jesus. He's also delivering the truth. So what does he do? He starts telling them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Boy, they didn't like that. They didn't even ask, What does this mean? They just said, No, uh uh-uh, not going to have any part of that. Many therefore, verse 60, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew it himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? What, and if you see the Son of Man ascend up to where He was before? In other words, He's saying, are you willing to be offended even if you see me go up to the Father? What He's saying is, are you going to let yourself get offended because you don't understand something, even if I really am the Messiah that was sent from God? It's always amazed me how people let themselves get offended over things that in in the final analysis don't matter a bit. I've had people get offended because of the the clothes that I wear. I've had people say, well, Pastor Mike, we enjoyed your church, but we're just not coming back because I just don't want to have to put on a suit and tie every week. Well, folks, did I ever send out a letter saying you're supposed to wear a suit and tie? But see, my dressing up made them feel uncomfortable. Now, maybe that was something God was dealing with them about. I don't know. Folks, how you dress is none of my business. But I consider what I do important enough to dress up to do it. I've tried this open-collar stuff and the Hawaiian shirt stuff, and I I can't hardly finish a service. It's like, you got to be kidding. I have no idea how these guys do it in in flip-flops and sandals. And uh, I'm glad I don't have to answer for it. That's between them and God. I don't care what they do, and they're reaching tons and tons of people. A lot of them have a lot bigger crowds than I do doing it that way. And a lot of it, that is exactly why people like it. It's a comfortable, casual atmosphere. Well, I'm not comfortable and casual about what I do. I take it real serious. But that's me. That's not something for you. You're not under the same requirement as I am. That's between you and God. I don't care. I'm just glad you come to hear. But that's where they're coming from. Jesus says, are you still willing to be offended if I really am the Messiah? Is your lack of understanding really worth that much? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you don't understand what I'm saying, and I get that. I get that you don't understand, but they're not even asking for clarification. But he's saying, the spirit, the words that I'm speaking to you, they are spirit and life. I told you the truth. What you're offended by is the truth. Maybe your lack of understanding about what the truth means but you're being offended by the truth. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who there were that believed not and who should betray him. Therefore he said unto them, Therefore I say unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given to him of my father. Verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now folks, I want you to see. It doesn't say the multitude's left. It says his disciples left. There could have been people that saw him walk on the water that quit walking with him. It wasn't just the twelve in the boat. There were others too. Certainly there were it was a large number of people that saw him multiply the loaves and the fishes. That they allowed themselves to get offended. Why? Because they were willing to accept the grace. The multitudes, the five thousand, was willing to take the profit of God's grace, that worked the miracles. But they weren't willing to hear the truth. You got a lot of people that'll do that nowadays. You got a lot of people that want the profit, the benefit, of healing, prosperity, well-being in every area. They like the message that Jesus has done all the work, but the reason they like the message that Jesus has completed the work is because they try to take the position that that means I don't have any work to do. And folks, there is nothing in the Bible that says there's freedom without responsibility. I'll prove that to you as, as we go in just a minute or two. So he's full of grace and truth, not just grace, but grace and truth. I wonder why God put those together. doesn't say he's full of grace, it says he's full of grace and truth. Must be something more than just the grace that we're supposed to get out of this. Otherwise, why would that be Jesus' nature? Back to John chapter 1. Again, verse 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice verse 16. And of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. So he talks about grace and truth and now he's talking about grace for grace. Could somebody tell me what grace for grace means? And grace for grace. Folks, if I didn't know better, I'd think that was a religious term that's created or made up from people today. And grace for grace. That doesn't make sense. Well, it's a poor translation. It's grace upon grace. The word for is literally the word upon. It's grace upon grace. Now, I'm going to trust you know a couple of scriptures. If if not, make a note or turn in in your Bibles to see them for yourself. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, for by grace are you saved. By faith. For by grace are you saved by faith. For by, now, it says a little bit more than that, but that's the part I want to focus on. For by grace are you saved by faith. Now, the word saved is the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it's an all-inclusive term. Even Dr. Schofield, who was the most renowned um, Baptist scholar of his day, the modern day, he says in his notes written in, uh, I think it's Romans chapter 1 regarding verses 16 and 17, he says that the word sozo is an all-inclusive term and it has several different meanings. It doesn't just mean salvation or forgiveness of sins as the word salvation or saved is used nowadays. It says it includes the, uh, the concept of deliverance. It includes the content, content uh, concept of being safe or being protected. It includes the concept of being sound that has to do with soundness of mind. That means comforted so that you don't have anything in the world that you worry about. That would certainly uh, encompass the idea of prosperity and, and financial well-being as well as any other well-being. And it includes the concept of being rescued. When you're in trouble, God comes to your rescue. That's part of salvation. That's part of what the Bible identifies and defines as salvation. Finally, it says it includes the concept of healing. Healing. The word "save," the word "sozo" is the same word over in James chapter five and verse fifteen, where it says the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and obviously the meaning there is healing. It's the same word in Mark chapter five and verse thirty-four, where Jesus says to the woman with the issue of blood after she's been healed, "Daughter, your faith has made you whole." So, healing and wholeness are part of the idea, the concept of sozo or salvation. The word being the word used here for saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. Now the fullness we beheld Jesus fullness and grace upon grace, that means it's an all inclusive thing. The Bible bears this out in other places as well. Romans chapter eight, verse thirty two, for example, says uh, well, let me look at Rome. look with me over to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. Paul is talking about what we have because we're child the children of God, the work that Jesus has done, and so forth. the The translators really didn't get the meaning of what Paul was uh, was conveying, and we know that because of the chapter the um, the verse designations where they put the verse breaks in this. Let's back up a little bit to um, verse thirty one. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, it says, What shall we say then to these things? What, the, what things is he talking about? He's talking about the help of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about God giving you a means to pray in a supernatural manner, utterance in the Holy Ghost, praying in other tongues, God working things out through the help of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about and identifying certain characteristics of the Holy Spirit is your helper, which Jesus told the disciples, I'll give you another comforter. Literally, that word comforter is helper. I'll give you another helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper, and Paul identifies or specifies how the Holy Ghost helps us. And so he continues and says after these things, after um, writing these things to them, he says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, that's the question. His question is an overall question. What do these things mean, therefore, to us? Now, Paul makes certain statements and then asks questions as a a means of, of preaching. Have you ever noticed how many questions I ask you about the Bible? Have you ever noticed that when we start talking about certain things that the Bible refers to, I'll ask you questions? The reason that I do that is because I want you to think for yourself rather than just me tell you something. Because if you think and see something for yourself, you'll remember it a lot longer than if I just tell you something and you say, oh, well, I never saw that. What you see, you remember. Paul does the same thing throughout his letters. He asks questions consistently. And so he makes a statement. He said, if, the last part of verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? This word if is the word since. Since God be for us, he's just identified God is for us because the Holy Ghost is our helper. He helps you. He gives you utterance to pray th- about your situations. He works things out to your advantage. All things work. To, we know that all things work together for good to them that are called of God and uh them that love God and are called according to his purpose. That verse of scripture cannot be taken out of context. The church world uses that to explain away tragedies. Well, we know God works all things together for our good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that after you pray in the Holy Ghost, God works things out to your advantage. That's what he's saying. After you pray in the Holy Ghost, after the Holy Ghost helps your infirmities with giving you utterance in other tongues, as you pray those things out, that's when God works things out to your benefit which explains why so much of the church world doesn't have things work out to their benefit. It explains why so much of the church world lives in defeat instead of victory. They're not utilizing the help of the Holy Ghost. Now, they can, because being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with other tongues belongs to everybody. Everybody that's saved doesn't belong to the world, but it belongs to the church. So anybody and everybody can have that. One of the greatest lies the devil has fostered on the church world is that, well, not everybody is destined to be filled with the Spirit. Because even Paul said, do all speak with tongues? And he's obviously saying not everybody does. Well, what he's saying is not everybody's used in a public ministry of tongues. But he says anybody can speak with other tongues. Anybody can be filled with the Spirit. God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't give the Holy Spirit to one of his children and not to all. That's what Paul is saying. That's why I asked the question, since the Holy Ghost is our helper, what are we going to say to these things? Here's his declarative statement. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Notice what God being for you means in verse 32. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know what he's saying? He's saying salvation is all-inclusive. He's saying the same thing we just identified through the, through the meaning, the definition of saved in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 as well as many other places in the New Testament. For by grace are you saved through faith. Salvation is an all-inclusive term. In other words, you could say you're saved, your sins are forgiven by grace, so your sins are forgiven through faith. By grace... You are delivered through faith. By grace, you are rescued through faith. By grace, you are healed through faith. By grace, your needs are met through faith. By grace, you have mental comfort and ease through faith. It all works the same way in, in, in every area because it's all part of this package called salvation. Paul is saying the same thing by the Holy Ghost to the Romans. He's saying, he that delivered, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How shall he not? How shall he not? How many of you have been at least tempted of the devil to think God wouldn't do something for you that the Bible says is yours? How many of you have been tempted to think, well, the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, but, but God might not heal me. Paul's saying, how is that possible? How many of you have looked at the Bible where it says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, but thought, yeah, but I've made such a mess of things. How can that work for me? Paul's saying, how is it possible for it not to work for you? Do you see what he's saying? What does he mean? He means grace upon grace. He means there's grace, the grace of God, the grace that you are saved by through faith is available for you no matter what the grace that saved you, forgave your sins, made you righteous through faith, there's still more grace available for your healing. And then after you receive your healing, there's still more grace available for your, your financial well-being. And after you get your finances in order, there's still more grace available for your mental peace and comfort. That's what grace upon grace means. He that delivered him up for us all, he spared not his own son. How shall he not with him also give us freely give us all things? Then he asked another question. He said, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You know what he's saying? He's saying, who is big enough to take away what Jesus has already delivered you Delivered to you through God sending His Son to the earth. Who can make the charge that since God has already given, even though God gave you Jesus His Son, and everything that goes along with this thing called salvation, who can say you're not worthy of having it? It's God that justifies. Do you see what he's saying? He's answering the question that most of us deal with. Because the devil comes at us and says that we've messed things up like uh, implying that we can mess things up so bad that what Jesus did for us won't really come to pass. Paul says, how is that possible? Jesus bought and paid for it. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. So therefore, who is he that condemns? Since God justified you, who can condemn you? Is the condemnation of the devil greater than the justification of God? That's the point Paul's making. It's impossible for any condemnation to be greater than the justification you've already received. Turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now you have to realize, John, because of his age knows all the things that have been written. He knows of the letters that have been written. He knows what Paul wrote to the church. He knows what Peter wrote to the church. When he writes his gospel, he doesn't elaborate on certain things. And remember, John was an uneducated man, just like Peter was. And so he writes in a very simple style, a much simpler style than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels all show us that they were educated men because of the sentence structure and stuff like that. John's just a simple guy, and his is filled with more depth in many ways than any of the other three Gospels. It's kind of funny how that works, isn't it? God will take an uneducated person and confound people that are a lot smarter. That's what he did with with the Gospel that John wrote. Second Peter chapter 1, we'll just start in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means I'm writing to people that are saved like I am. He's writing to the Christians, right? What does he say to people that are already saved? People that have already received this total package of salvation. People that have been sozoed. I'm not one to to coin phrases, but folks, I think it would be a real good idea for us to say, yeah, I was sozoed by by faith in Jesus Christ. Because we are so, the church has created this 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 narrow definition of what salvation is. That's not the definition the Bible gives. So he's writing to people that are saved. He's writing to Christians, people that have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now I want you to notice, we're going to read some, several scriptures down through about verse 10. But I want you to notice something. He uses the word knowledge several times. There are two different words that are used for knowledge throughout these scriptures, throughout this, uh, this passage of scripture. This first word that's used in verse 2 is knowledge. It means recognition. He says grace and peace are n- multiplied th- to you as you recognize who Jesus is and what he's done. Grace and peace are multiplied. Now, wait a minute. I thought we're saved by grace. By grace, you're saved through faith. You were. Here's grace upon grace. He's saying grace multiplies. You were brought into the family of God by the grace of God, but grace can always multiply. And uh, there's one and only one way it does multiply, and that is through the recognition of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's why John says, and the fullness, we beheld his fullness The fullness of God was in him and grace upon grace. Folks, I know I'm going real slow on this part, the introduction part of of John chapter 1, but it's real, real, real important that you recognize what John is saying. John knew Jesus better in the flesh than anybody ever did. He was closer to Jesus than anybody ever was. He's lived a longer life and have experienced things. He's experienced persecution, but he's been spared from execution numerous times. He's been persecuted, no question about it. But they got to the place where they had to just exile this guy to an island because they couldn't kill him. He's seen the power of God operate in his life in such a manner that the church world knows about it. That's one of the reasons why he's the most famous preacher alive at the point in time that he writes this in the book of Revelation. It's almost like what he says is beyond question. And what does he say? He says that grace never runs out. It's almost like he knows what he's talking about. It's almost like he's seen the work of Jesus expand bigger and bigger and bigger. You ever been surprised by God? You ever had God do something for you that you thought, well, my goodness, I never thought God would even think about doing something like that. What does that mean? Grace upon grace. So Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge, recognition of God and of Jesus our Lord. According, how does that recognition come? According as his divine power, please notice that, his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Why does Peter say life and godliness? Because he's talking about things for this life and he's talking about your spiritual life too. Religion always wants to spiritualize things. Well, yeah, Pastor Mike, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, folks, every natural blessing you can conceive of has a spiritual source. And the reason that spiritual blessings are the things that are important is because that's the source of every natural thing you'll ever need. Peter says it outright. He says God's power has already... By the way, where did God's power uh, manifest? Where was God's power shown? Paul says the greatest display of God's power was when Jesus was raised from the dead. So according to the resurrection of the dead, the power of God shown in the resurrection of the dead, his power has delivered unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Exceeding great and precious promises or all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I'm ahead of myself, aren't I? According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. What's he saying? He's saying salvation is an all-inclusive package. Well, Pastor Mike, what I need is I need more money so we can pay our bills. That's part of salvation. For by grace do you prosper through faith. Well, Pastor Mike, what I need is physical healing. For by grace are you healed through faith. Why? Because salvation, sozo, means everything. Everything that pertains to life. Well, Pastor Mike, what I need is I need help on my job. That's part of salvation. Everything you can think of in this natural life that you need help with is part of salvation. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying it in a different way than John did. He's saying it in a different way than than Paul did, but he's saying the same thing. He's saying that his divine power, the resurrection of Jesus has given us all things that pertain into life and godliness. You can't think of one natural thing. You can't think of one spiritual thing that has not already been accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Peter says is called grace and is multiplied along with peace through the recognition of who Jesus is and what he's done. I'm glad you're excited about this. It's almost too good to be true. At least it sounds almost too good to be true. But the reality is, it is true, and it's really good. According as His divine power is given unto us all things, all things, all things that pertain unto both life, this natural life, and godliness, spiritual character, spiritual development, in other words, through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. This is the word recognition again. He's talking about the recognition, the recognition, the recognition of Jesus. Brings us to that place where we take part. Or partake of all that Jesus did, whereby, verse four, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. How are we going to recognize who Jesus is and what he did through the word? That's the only way you know God is through his word. That by these, by these promises, by the Scriptures, the New Testament, that which tells us about who Jesus is, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, wait a minute, I thought Paul, or uh, what's his name, Peter? I thought Peter just said he was writing this to people that were saved. If he's writing this to people that are saved, aren't they partakers of the divine nature? They've already been made righteous. You can't be any more partaker of the divine nature than righteous, can you? You ever been to a party? Where the host provides all this wonderful food and they never eat a bit of it. They just walk around and talk to people all night. It belongs to them. They paid the bill for it. But they never partake of it. They enjoy the blessings. They may be doing exactly what they want to do. They're fellowshipping with everybody else. But they don't partake of the banquet table that they set for everybody else. You can have everything and not partake of any of it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you've been saved, you've been given this all-inclusive package, but it's only through the recognition of Jesus through the word of God that you become a partaker. In other words, that the blessings of God that you have been given become a reality in your life. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these promises you might be partakers. The word might means able. You will be able to partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The Word of God will not only bring you into partaking of the blessings of God, making the the blessings of God's Word a reality in your life, but you also get to escape the world stuff. You get the good stuff from the Word, and the Word equips you to escape the bad stuff. And that would make sense, because if sozo, salvation, includes safety and soundness, then there will be a lot of things that you'll be protected from that you won't even know till you get to heaven and God shows you what he protected you from. One of the things that David said, in uh, uh, that Moses said, excuse me, in uh, Psalm 91, he said, only with my eyes will I be, talking about the person that follows God, he said, only with your eyes will you behold the destruction of the wicked. In other words, you'll see it happen to other people, but it won't come to you. That's escaping the corruption that's in the world through lust. And beside all this, that sounds like grace to to me, doesn't it to you? It sounds like the things that Jesus has done. But now notice here's the truth side. It's not just all good news, all hunky-dory, hip ray, whatever. Sorry, my mouth's not working very good tonight. Notice he says, and besides this, in addition to this is what it means, giving all diligence. It won't happen unless you're diligent. In this regard. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, folks, if you don't, if you're not operating in faith then the things of God aren't going to come to pass for you anyway. If you haven't operated in faith, you're not going to be one of the righteous that he writes this to. If you're not operating in faith, the grace of God's inclusiveness of salvation won't become yours. You won't be a partaker. But he just told you how to be a partaker. Now, as you begin to partake, he says, adding diligently to your faith, virtue. The word virtue is an interesting word. It means excellence through strength. It means excellence through strength. Now, notice we, uh, we kind of skipped over the last part of verse 3. But let me back up a little bit. It says, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness... Through the knowledge of him that has called us to what? Glory and virtue. God has called you to do two things according to what the Holy Ghost tells Peter to write. He's called you to, number one, manifest the glory of God. People should be able to look at you and just like Jesus said, he that seen me has seen the Father. He should be able to, people of the world should be able to see us manifesting the healing power of God. Doesn't mean you'll have a healing ministry. It means when you see somebody sick, you can lay hands on them and they get well. It means it works in the neighborhood. It means it works on the job. It it. Wor- it means it works wherever you are. They should also be able to see the light of God's glory in our face. Now they may not be able to know to, to identify what it is. I wouldn't expect many people to be able to identify it, but they'll look at us and they'll say, "There's something different about them." I was. Uh, uh, I walk down in, in um, Dana Point Harbor most well, usually six days a week. I walk anywhere from um, seven to ten miles a day. It's been great. I've I been doing that for but for a couple of months, and I have a chance to pray down there like nobody's business. I mean, it's just wonderful. I uh, after I'd been doing this for about a month, I found that there was a little bit of lady, a little Oriental lady, she'd follow me. And sometimes she'd get close, sometimes she'd back up, she'd trail back, aggravating the stew out of me. Cause I don't, I don't want to be bothered, you know? And there's kind of a group of regulars and, and every now and then people will recognize, okay, you're a regular, I'll wave at you kind of stuff. And that's fine. And that's all I want. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to make friends with anybody. And this oriental woman, she wouldn't leave me alone. Finally, one day she walks up, she comes up and, and I, I, I heard her and I looked around, she just, she just, walking right beside me. A little short lady, so she had to kind of speed up a little bit. So I see that she's with me, so I'm speeding up. So she speeds up. So here we are, we're going down, and finally I look at her and said, Hi. She said, Hi. She keeps walking with me. We walk maybe a mile. And I'm thinking, what is this woman doing? Finally she said, There's a light on you. I said, what? She said, there's a light on you. I said, what do you mean? She stopped. I stopped. I I guess I stopped before she did. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I I don't know if you'll understand what I mean by this or not, but she said, I can see people's auras. I thought, okay. (laughs) She said, for the last couple of weeks, I've been following your aura. I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, most people just have a gray aura about them, but there's a light on you. And I said, well, I don't know if you're going to understand what I'm going to say. (laughs) But what you're calling an aura is the life of God in me. She said, I knew it. I said, you knew what? She said, I knew that there was something supernatural about this. She used the word supernatural. Lost is a goose in a (laughs) hailstorm. But she used the word supernatural. She said, there's a light on you. And I said, well, when I say it's the life of God, what I mean by that is I asked Jesus to come into my heart and he made me a new person. I said, I didn't used to have a light on me. But that light that you're seeing is the spirit of God that lives in me now. She said, yes, yes, well, we all have a measure of God. I said, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. The people you think have a measure of God in them are going to hell if they don't make Jesus the Lord of their lives. I'm saying that I made Jesus my Lord and Savior, and he changed me. What you see, whatever it might be, is a result of the life of God because of the decision I made for Jesus. She said, well, I just wanted you to know. And I said, ma'am, I want you to know. So she said, okay, well, I'll see you around. I'll see her every now and then. She stopped following me. But every now and then I'll see her. She'll just wave. Sometimes she'll wave and go like this. I'm minding my own business just walking. This woman following me going like this. <laughs> Most you're called to glory and virtue. You're called to manifest the glory of God and you're called to excellence through strength. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith Virtue, This excellence through strength and to that excellence of strength, add knowledge. Now, here's the second word for knowledge. This word means to learn or to grow. Add to the excellence of your strength, knowledge. Now, what's he saying? He's saying you never run out. You never come to the end. It's always supposed to be a continuous growth process and add to knowledge temperance. Now, what's temperance mean? Temperance means self-control. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. Peter is saying by the Holy Ghost that grace, which multiplies to the recognition of Jesus, is supposed to result in self-control. Proverbs 29, verse 18, I think it is, says, Without a vision, people perish. Without a vision. The first part of the verse says, Without a vision, people perish. That's not really a good translation. One translation says it this way. It says, Without a vision... People cast off restraint. They live unproductive and undisciplined lives. They got a lot of people. And Paul was accused of this. Paul was accused of preaching a gospel that the work has been done. Just go live it up. Have a high heel time. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. And you get some folks. There were some folks in his day that did that. Paul talked to the Galatians. He said, don't let... Your liberty be an occasion to serve your flesh. In other words, don't let the grace of God just let you live unrestrained lives. Be temperate. He's, the Bible is saying that's part of growth. Now, I understand that, that we have to grow into this. I Listen, when I first heard the message of the word, the thing that got me was the prosperity message. And I had these visions of all kinds of things, God doing this and God doing that. And And, and looking back at it, I was completely selfish. Completely selfish. I didn't want to prosper so I could do things for the kingdom of God. I wanted to prosper because I didn't have two nickels to rub together. What I wanted is for me. I wanted to get me out of debt. I wanted to get me a new car. I wanted to get me whatever I wanted. As Brother Osteen, John Osteen used to say, prosperity, the prosperity message is not for you to buy everything you set your beady little eyes on. Well, that's what I was. That's where I was. And folks, God didn't condemn me for that. He just let me grow out of it. There's a lot of Christians. There's a lot of people that are using the finished work of Jesus for their own selfish purposes. And God lets them grow out of it. But they are supposed to grow out of it. And it's the word that does it. These exceeding great and precious promises are the things that add to us so that we live disciplined lives. We think, we have the idea, we from a natural standpoint think discipline is a dirty word. Oh, we won't, don't want discipline. Listen, discipline is the means whereby the blessings of God become a reality for you. It's discipline, discipline according to the Word of God, discipline according to the way that we live our lives. That's what brings the blessings of God into our lives. That's what this is saying. Add to your knowledge, your growth, self-control. And add to your self-control patience, because it's not going to work overnight. It's not going to take place overnight. You're not going to grow up spiritually overnight. This word patient means a cheerful expectation. Cheerfully expecting the the reality of the word to become, or the the truth of the word to become a reality in your life. And add to patience godliness. Godliness. He's talking about more of Godlikeness. I thought God gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He did. And He expects you to grow into them. He expects us to grow into the character of God Himself. And add to your godliness, your Godlikeness, brotherly kindness. Interesting, He starts talking about love at the end of the list. It takes some maturity to love some folks, doesn't it? Some people, you got to love by faith. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity or love. Verse 8, for if these things be in you, what things? Faith, strength through excellence, or excellence through strength, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. If these things be in you and abound, that means grow in the use thereof. If these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the characteristics that, that make it impossible for you not to bear fruit. These are the things that make it impossible for you not to have evidence of the life of God and His blessings. In every aspect of your life. What's he saying? Well, he's saying not only grace upon grace. He's saying grace and truth. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. And has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Folks, that's the condition of most of the modern church, I would suspect. Salvation is just one of those things that, yeah, I I went to the altar one time. Or I prayed a prayer one time and I asked Jesus into my heart. But it's not a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle. You can tell that it's not a lifestyle for a lot of people just by seeing some of these things, the absence of of some of these things specific characteristics. There's no excellence in their lives. There's no strength in their lives. There's no self-control in their lives. There's no brotherly kindness. There's no charity. There's no agape love. There's no patience. That's where most of the church seems to me to be. Oh, yeah, we love God. And only God can judge me. You know what that means? That means that's a person that's not trying to grow in this stuff. That's a person that doesn't care about these characteristics. There's somebody that wants to live on the grace of God, the goodness of God, without ever adding any truth to their lives. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. You shall never fall. Let me close with a couple of verses real quick from John chapter 1 again. We'll wrap it up and then pick up here next time. Verse 16 again, And of His fullness have we received, and grace upon grace... Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Here's the contrast. The law was given by Moses. In other words, God delivered the law to Moses so he could share it with the people. God didn't give Jesus anything. The nature of Jesus was grace and truth. Grace and truth came by Jesus. He's not delivering something. It's who he is. It's the character and the nature of God then shouldn't grace and truth and grace upon grace be our nature too? I mean, if he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily and we have received of his fullness and we're complete in him, shouldn't we be showing the same things he did? Not undisciplined, not without love, not without patience, but shouldn't we people that are excellent through strength Shouldn't we be people people of faith that are adding to our faith and continuing to grow in the things of God? Shouldn't we not give up on people too? For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father... He has declared him. The word declared means to tell out. This is the, This concludes the introduction that John gave to his gospel. And it really means this. We know God because we saw Jesus. You can't see God in the flesh. God meaning the Father. Nobody can see the face of God. And we won't see the face of God until we get to heaven. But we can see who God is by looking at Jesus. Because everything about Jesus was God. He was the Son of God. He has fully declared him. He has fully told us who God is. There's no way for anybody to legitimately or rightly say, well, I'm not sure what God would do in this situation because we see Jesus. There's no way we could say, I'm not sure what God thinks about this because we see Jesus. That's what it means. Jesus has fully declared the father. There's nothing about God that should be a mystery because Jesus has fully declared who he is. This idea that the church has, well, you never know what God's going to do. Sure you do. Jesus has fully declared it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to know you through Jesus. We thank you, Father, that he has fully revealed you unto us so that we can be like you as we follow his example. I thank you, Father, that as we add Faith, virtue, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. We shall manifest the glory and the virtue of God. We shall not be barren and shall never fall. What a privilege it is to be a part of your family, Lord. I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that are worthy Of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.